You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Um, we're going to be reading the scripture for this morning, and as you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. It comes from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 12. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was, he has put him to grief. When his, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall, see his off, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide my portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, David. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Joel. I'm one of the elders here. I have the privilege of digging into this text with you today and, and into this question that we're exploring today. Uh, why don't you join me in your hearts as I pray for our time? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, and we pray that as we explore it and as we explore this question, that God, you would, by your Holy Spirit's presence here, actively work among us to open up our eyes and our hearts to receive what you have, to transform us from people of violence to people of peace. So help us, God, right now, we pray in, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to begin our time as we look at this question, doesn't Christianity crush violence, just telling you a couple of quick little anecdotal stories, okay? So one comes from a friend of mine who told me just earlier this week, he took his son to his first Sounders game. And during that Sounders game, I think it was even earlier this week maybe, uh, someone from the opposing team got injured and the whole crowd started chanting, let him die, let him die. Anybody ever heard of this? I guess this is something that actually happens at Sounders games, is what I've been told. Uh, kind of messed up, if you ask me. What in the world? I don't, I don't get that. Maybe there's more, more to that story. Uh, so, second story. 
My son, uh, well, all my kids really enjoy Minecraft, especially our son Eli, and he, he still plays it regularly. And this week I noticed that there's a, a game rating on the front cover, as games often have, and it's rated 10 plus, if you want to show it there. And what's it rated 10 plus for? For fantasy violence. And so I asked the kids, I said, so what's, what, what in the world is <laughs> fantasy violence? And they told me, well, you know, if you kill zombies, then they give you stuff. And I was like, man, that is a great life lesson. I think that's really important for all of us to know that if you kill zombies, <laughs> they give you stuff. Uh, but, but seriously, it was a reminder to me about how many video games, I mean, Minecraft's pretty mild if we're honest, right? But... Uh, so many of our video games are filled with violence, first-person shooter games, right? We're surrounded by things like that in our entertainment, in films. How many films of ours are just dominated by violence? How many of our news feeds are dominated by violence? And so we are a people who in many ways are obsessed with violence, and at the same time, we're also people who hate it. And some of you at this point are going, okay, but what are you even talking about when you're talking about violence? Because this word is used in a lot of different ways today. And I'm just going with the dictionary definition, real simple, behavior involving physical force intended to hurt, damage, or kill someone or something. And I think that if we look at that definition, we can, whether you're Christian or not, you could probably agree we should hate violence. We should. But then the question is posed, but doesn't Christianity promote violence or doesn't it, doesn't it cause violence? And as I've been telling you throughout this series, you know, we're not just exploring the Christian answer to these questions, because the Christian answer, I think, to every question is probably going to be no, okay? But we're also exploring the yes to this question, and we're looking at why someone today might say yes, and maybe even you might say yes to this question. And so I'm going to start with the yes, we'll get to the no in just a moment. So there's really just two points. The first is yes, because Christians have a violent history, okay? And the place that people usually begin uh, when they look at this is not specifically with Christian history, but with Old Testament history. And I'll acknowledge as a Christian perfectly good place to start because you don't have Christianity without the Old Testament, without Judaism. And uh, perhaps one of the most difficult passages in the Old Testament are what are the so-called holy wars. Anybody ever heard of these before? The holy wars, right? These are the times where God specifically commands Israel to destroy certain people groups so that they can inhabit the land in those places. Now, this is in a lot of different spots in the Old Testament, but check out Deuteronomy chapter 20. It says this, but in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive, listen, nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. And then it goes on to list some people groups in the land of Canaan, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. So this is not just arbitrary. This is God's command that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. 
Okay, so that's the setting, that's kind of the, the, the preparation as Israel is about to go into the promised land and, and have this Canaanite conquest, as they call it. That's what God tells them to do. Now, in later in the book of Joshua in chapters 9 through 11, we're given the account of where they actually do that. And it's Joshua and the nation of Israel, and there's a bunch of different people groups that this happens with. I'm just going to highlight one of them. They're almost all word for word the same as this one. Here's what it says in chapter 10. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. Okay, so as I said, this is only one account. All those people groups that God told them to destroy in uh, Deuteronomy 20, that passage we read earlier, you can go, by, go back in Joshua and read how they systematically do that. Uh, and, and in all of those places, it says they kill all the people, everything that breathed, which, of course, is very, very violent. So what do we make of this? A lot of people struggle with these passages, not just due to the violence, but also due to the fact that they're very specific people groups that are being targeted here. And in our modern ears, that comes off like it's some kind of genocidal, crazy stuff going on, right? It sounds that way to us. And on top of that, we know that if everything that breathed was killed, then that includes women and children. And so people are like, what is this, genocidal baby killing? I don't want to have anything to do with a faith that is based off of that, right? And then there's other groups of, of well-meaning Christians who've taken all that stuff and they've just concluded, well, there's no way that the loving God of the New Testament could have ever said those kinds of things. So they kind of effectively snip those parts out of their Bibles and say, well, God never said that. But I think there's actually a better explanation for these events, one that actually upholds the truthfulness and the reliability of our Scripture while reckoning with the fact that these wars took place in a very distant land and a very distant time that we are detached from. We're in a completely different context. And so let's, let's look at that. I, I have a, a few different explanations for it. The first is, and by the way, I took these mainly from a guy named Paul Copen and Tim Mackey. The holy wars were not absolute. This is very important. The language of what it, that it used, devoted to destruction, all that breathed, this kind of language was very common hyperbole in ancient Near Eastern conquest war uh, accounts. Very common at Joshua's time. It was, he was using the language of his day. It was a way of saying, all the land was captured, all the kings defeated, and all the Canaanites were destroyed. And we might ask, well, okay, but were, was every single person killed? And the answer is no. We can look even just a few chapters later in the book of Joshua, I think it's chapter 14, and we see that there are people from those exact same tribes living in those exact same places alive. So not every single individual person was killed. This is hyperbole. 
Another explanation is that the holy wars were not genocide. This was God's just punishment. We look at it and we go, oh, well, they're killing all these individual people groups, but the motivation was not ethnic or racial in nature. You might have caught that. Now, throughout history, most cultures have seen things like religious practices and the ways that cultures do their thing and and ethnicity, race, all these things were kind of viewed as one and the same. I mean, a lot of people today still see things this way, like parts of India. It's just, if you're from here, you are Hindu. You know, if, if you're an Arab, you are Muslim. Like, these kinds of things are just synonymous in a lot of people's minds. And the people who were living in the promised land were all part of cultures that practiced idol worship. And idol worship, if you guys weren't here last week, we talked about this a bit, idol worship leads to all sorts of injustice and evil. And the Canaanite people's idolatry was known for all all sorts of injustice and evil, including things like sexual promiscuity, I mean, like fertility cult kind of stuff, you know, Uh, widespread child sacrifice and bodily mutilation, all of these things included in their worship of their false gods. And so God gives us the reason why he's wanting his people to go in there and do this. It's so that he can judge them. He wants to enact judgment on these people who are doing these horrific and wicked things. And these nations, they deserved God's judgment. And the way that we know that this was not genocidal or racially motivated is God judges Israel in the exact same way centuries later. He even sends them off into exile. And it's for the same reasons. It's for this same kind of idolatry. Lastly, the holy wars were not normative. So this is really, I think, very important to remember. These battles that we looked at in Joshua, they're specifically commanded by God, but no other Old Testament wars were. Some of those wars that we see, those battles, seem to gain God's approval, but others totally didn't. In fact, he rebuked them for doing them. In fact, God later prevents King David from building the temple And the reason for it, he says, is you have shed much blood and waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. 1 Chronicles 22.8. So it's clear, God didn't want his people just to be generally violent. That was not his heart. And so if you're a skeptic, even if this answer on the holy wars is satisfactory, I think there's probably another one rolling around in your mind and you're going, this is a good example of Christianity promoting violence. And the second place that people tend to look to is the Crusades. Pretty, pretty common, right? And we got to acknowledge that Crusades are not very well understood today, but in short, it seems as though many, if not most of the people who participated in them actually thought that they were like Joshua and the Israelites, that they were, uh, in their case, going into Canaan's land and taking the land from the militant Muslims in, in their situation. And we could acknowledge that they were extremely misguided in, in that understanding, uh, but perhaps they might have been well-intentioned. They went to Jerusalem to protect their holy sites 
and the people who lived there. See, these, these militant Muslim warriors had violently removed Christians, some Christians, some Jews, from the city. They'd stopped permitting them to worship. They'd even, a little earlier, they destroyed the site of Jesus' resurrection. And so these crusaders are like, we got to go in there and we got to get that land back. But by the time that the, the crusaders finally took control of the city, they get there and they'd lost half of their troops. They were dehydrated. They were starving. They were angry. And they rush into the city. And what do they do? All the historic accounts tell us they get, killed tens of thousands of Muslim civilians, including women and children. We got to note, again, this was not a racist genocide, a racistly motivated killing. They were purging the city of those who were active enemies of Christianity. But that aside, this was still evil. We can acknowledge that as Christians today. Because while those Old Testament holy wars were very hard for us to wrap our minds around, they were at least commanded by God, so we knew that they were just, whereas the Crusades weren't. And these two examples, the the Old Testament holy wars and the Crusades, they're just two very brief examples of what you might cite when arguing that Christianity promotes violence. But unfortunately, I think most of us, if not all of us, know that the list could actually go on. We could talk about cultural imperialism and colonialism and wars between Protestants and Catholics and, and, and Orthodox Christians, all this infighting, right? We could talk about the Salem witch trials and chattel slavery and conquistadors forcing native people to be baptized. We could talk about how the Nazis claimed to be Christians. We could talk about Bloody Sunday in Ireland. We could talk about the Bosnian War. I could keep going, and we all might descend into the pit of despair, amen, if I did. This is the real history of people promoting violence in the name of Christ. And so before I go on to argue that this is in fact the opposite of Christianity, we have to stay here for just a moment longer and ask, what should we do with this history? What do we do with it? And I'm going to give you just a couple things briefly. I think we should grieve it. I think it should give us, fill us with sorrow that people did these things in the name of Jesus. But then also we should repent and, and I'm sure you're thinking, well, hold on, I didn't do any of those things. How can I repent of that? Like Daniel repented on behalf of his people, having not done anything that they had done, we can repent of our people, the, the, the people who have claimed to be Christians and have done these things, and, and do it by saying, I don't want to have anything to do with living like they lived, God. Help me to turn towards you and help me to learn from their mistakes so that I never do what they did. And so why have people promoted violence in the name of Christ? Ignorance or ignoring scripture, I think is a big one. You know, we in our modern day, we take for granted the fact that we can read the Bible in our own language, right? We forget that for the first 1,500 years plus of Christianity, People couldn't do that, right? There wasn't widespread um, literacy. The Bible, we didn't have the printing press yet. Uh, People couldn't read the scriptures for themselves. It often wasn't in their own language. Most Christians didn't know what the Bible taught unless the priests taught them. 
And so they were kind of captive to Christian, uh, Christendom as a cultural force to show them the teachings of Scripture, the teachings of Jesus. So there's often just blanket ignorance of what the Bible teaches on this subject. But also, I will say, I, I think sometimes people just deliberately ignored what the Bible teaches. Because if you're a Christian, you know of the cross of Christ, which is the place that I'm going to go in a moment talking about violence, and you know at least that, but nonetheless, ignorance or ignoring Scripture. Misinterpretations of Scripture, I think, is another big one. Just like the Crusaders did, they're conflating the nation of Israel with the church or with our own nation. And, and mixing all of this stuff up, misinterpreting it to, to see military might somehow as though it is God's might. I think it's another reason, but here's the, the last one. Why uh, people have promoted violence in the name of Christ. I think this is the biggest one. People are violent. We are simply violent. Violence was the first sin after the fall. Cain kills his brother Abel. And it's been a bloodbath ever since then. And on top of that, people, we are a contradiction. Even well-meaning Christians have parts of their hearts that have not been surrendered to Jesus, and that it can include being people who are violent. And so this is the biggest issue, the biggest reason why people have promoted violence in the name of Christ. Now, it could be easily argued that all religions promote violence to some extent, and I could probably more easily than that, prove that Christians are less violent than people from other religions. But the issue isn't so much about which religion is the least violent. It's about what has the power to change violent people. And so that's what we're going to deal with because uh, religion doesn't change inherent underlying violent tendencies. We actually need something more than that, we need to be transformed from people of violence to people of God's peace. And that's, that's what Christianity is, is all about. And so let's look at that second answer to this question. Doesn't Christianity promote violence? No, because Christ transforms our violent hearts. And you might already be thinking, well, okay, I'm glad that he transforms people who have violent hearts, but I don't have a violent heart. And I'd like to just uh, propose to you that, that that's not true uh, and, and show you something that Jesus taught. Uh, and we're, so we're going to look quickly at the bad news before we get to the good news. Here's what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is saying that even bitter anger in our hearts and bitter words on our mouths, it's considered murder in God's eyes. Jesus expands our understanding of violence to include these intentions of our hearts and the ways in which we speak. And it helps us to see as Christians that you know, it's not those violent, evil people out there and all the good people in here, but actually, we're all in the same boat. We're all in need of God's grace and change when it comes to this issue of violence so that we can all become people of peace, which is exactly what Jesus 
came to do by subjecting himself to violence on the cross. So that's what we're going to look at now, that passage that we heard Pastor David read earlier in Isaiah 53. We're, we're just going to break this up into asking some questions and using the text to answer them. What did Christ subject himself to violence for? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Those are two types of sin. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so 700 years before the arrival of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah prophesies these words and he speaks them as though they are in the past tense and yet they have not yet happened. These are words prophesying Jesus being crucified. And here he tells us that Christ bore our griefs. What did Christ subject himself to violence for? For our griefs. For our sorrows, he carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sins. Everything that Jesus experienced on the cross was in our place and for our sins, for us. Because our violence against humans is ultimately violence against God. And it ultimately deserves his just and violent punishment. But Jesus took the punishment we deserve in order to bring us, it says in verse 5, bring us peace. And you guys who've been around here, you know this word peace. It's the Hebrew word shalom. It means far more than the absence of war. This is wholeness, healing, Health and, and flourishing, like we even talked about with the children of the nation stuff earlier. We want those children to flourish. We want them to experience this peace, this shalom. And Jesus subjected himself to violence for us to receive that kind of peace. What violence did Christ subject himself to? It says, He was oppressed and He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, though he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. What violence did Christ subject himself to? To oppression, to affliction, to a false trial referred to here in verse uh, 8 as judgment. He subjected himself to false judgment. He subjected himself even, it says, to death. He was cut off out of the land of the living. Though... 
he was innocent. Though he had done, it says, no violence. He subjected himself to the most violent torture human beings have ever come up with, and that is crucifixion. Why? Why? Why did Christ allow this violence against him? It tells us, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Some of your translations say, he shall see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Why? Did Christ allow this violence to be done against him? It told us in verse 10, because it was God's will. It was God's will. In fact, Jesus, as he prepared to go to the cross that same night, he's on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, asking God, please allow this to happen in some other way. Is there any other way that we can bring salvation to the world? Father, help Is there any way? And he says, yet not my will, but yours be done. It was the will of God that sent Jesus to the cross. And so, was it God or was it humans that killed Jesus, that that placed this violence upon him? Well, the closest answer to that question in Scripture is yes, that, that it was both. It says in Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God foreknew that this would happen. Peter, the apostle there says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God In his foreknowledge, in his sovereignty, he looked through the passages of time and he knew that he could count on people being violent. He knew that he could count on people rejecting him when he came to earth in the flesh. He knew that if he sent his son, that human beings would kill him. And so, yes, it was, it was God working with violent human beings in order to fulfill his will. Why else did Christ allow this violence against him? Because our guilt required an offering. Verse 10 said that. Jesus died for our sins. Once and for all, Hebrews 7.27 tells us, that, that Christ's sacrifice is the last sacrifice. That's why when we come together here today, we're going to take communion and we remember Jesus' sacrifice as we receive these elements, but we don't make a new sacrifice because Jesus has done it. Our guilt offering was offered and it was received. Why else did Christ allow this violence 
against him because he knew it said that he would see his offspring. And that word kind of feels weird to us. We're like, what is it? You know, I think an equally strange word in our, uh, our language would be like his progeny, right? We're like, what? His offspring, what are we talking about here? It's talking about Christians. Why did Jesus subject himself to violence? Because we friends who believe in him are his offspring. We are his descendants. We get to be brought into the family of God through the love of God poured out for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. Why did he subject himself to violence? So that he could win us so that he could save us, so that this one and only righteous man who has ever lived would, as the scripture just there said, would make many to be accounted as righteous. As we are hidden in him, we are clothed in his righteousness. And so it said in verse 11 that he knew he would see and be satisfied. That's why he subjected himself to this violence. As I mentioned, many translations say he would see the light of life and be satisfied. He would rise again. He knew that death death could not contain him. It could not keep him. And he knew that on the other side of winning our salvation, he would rise and live again. And just as Christ was healed from that violence that was inflicted upon him. So we are promised as believers to one day rise from death, that we would see the light of life and be satisfied by the realities of living in eternity with God forever without any violence. Violence free, total peace, total shalom. And until then, Jesus not only gives us the grace to deal with our violent hearts, but he provides an example to us of a new way to deal with violence. You see that? The cross is not just the place of our salvation, but it's also the example of how we are to live. We see this all throughout Jesus' teaching. We're given clear directives from him that we are to love our neighbors, even our enemies, that we are to pray for those who persecute us, that we're never to avenge ourselves, but we're to leave it to the judgment of God on the last day. Because Jesus made peace between us and God, we are now people of peace. And so the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 12, don't be overcome with evil. You're going to experience it. You're going to experience violence. Don't be overcome with it, but overcome evil with good. And so I think very, very clearly, very explicitly, emphatically, Christianity is not violent. Can I get an amen? So we have to ask, have Christians actually lived this way? You know, we talked a lot earlier about how Christians have failed to live this way, but have Christians lived this way? Does the cross of Christ actually change people? 
Does it actually change violent hearts? And the answer again is yes. Yes. Historians, they'll go back and they'll cite two main reasons why Christianity exploded early on despite very strong opposition in the Roman world. One is Christian charity. It's, it's loving the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed and accepting everyone. The other is Christian nonviolent response to persecution. Those are the reasons why Christianity grew. And this went on until around 300 AD when the Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity. And as soon as Christians stopped being persecuted was when Christians, we, we have the first records of Christians starting to persecute others. Just a little important information there. Prior to that, and, and even up until this day though, there are countless accounts Countless examples of Christians allowing themselves to be inflicted with violence rather than being violent. I'll just give you a quick rundown since I gave you a quick rundown of examples of Christians uh, being violent in the name of Christ. Here's counterexamples. Paul, Apostle Paul, we know from tradition, he was beheaded for Christ. Apostle Peter, we know that from tradition, he was crucified upside down for Christ rather than enacting violence. The Apostle John, he was plunged into boiling oil. Stephen, the early uh, deacon in the church, he was stoned to death. With stones, by the way. Okay? Stephen was stoned to death. Uh, there are countless examples of martyrs in church history. Countless examples of people who would rather suffer violence than inflicted. And there are tens of thousands of Christian martyrs every year today. If you can believe it, maybe, maybe you aren't aware of that. And in, and in fact, if you include Christians who are being killed for their Christianity in the context of war, that number is probably closer to like 100,000 Christians a year are killed. Jesus' commitment to nonviolence was at the heart of the civil rights movement, right? Martin Luther King Jr. said the love ethic of Jesus was the only morally and practically sound method open to oppressed people in their struggle for freedom. It is not unrealistic submission to evil power. It is rather a courageous confrontation of evil by the power of love. That's, that's a transformed heart in the faith that it is better to be the recipient of violence than the inflictor of it, since the latter only multiplies the existence of violence and bitterness in the universe, while the former may develop a sense of shame in the opponent and thereby bring about a transformation and change of heart. A changed heart living in a nonviolent way in order to change hearts. And so untold numbers of Christians have been transformed by Christ. And there's far more to the Christian legacy than the Crusades. Because the cross of Jesus Christ, friends, it's the tree that we as Christians plant ourselves in. And this tree, it yields fruit. It yields the fruit of the Spirit, which are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, most of those being antonyms for violence, right? And so as we plant ourselves in this tree, we bear the fruit 
of the Spirit because Christ transforms our violent hearts. He transforms our enemies into neighbors. He turns our hostilities into unity. He turns our anger into love. I'm going to pray and let's respond to God together. Father God, we thank you for sending your son to die this death on our behalf, to receive this violent from, violence from the hands of lawless men in order that we might be brought to peace. God, help the cross of Jesus to transform us now, we pray. Help us to reflect his love. We pray in his name we pray, amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.